following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. So glad that each of you could be here. Um, continually, God brings people along the way, continuing to encourage and challenge and help us think. Um, and you know what? We're so thankful you're here. Whether it's your first time or whether it's maybe your second or third time, I probably won't remember you right away. Uh, neither will anyone else. So make sure you say your name like three or four times to them. And make sure they say their name as well. All right, so it's helpful for all of us to continue to work that way. But we're very glad you're here. Um, welcome to all who have not heard uh, anything from Mark also. Um, I'm sorry to tell you that we've actually already finished Mark um, completely. And, uh, but we just really can't let it go. Um, we are, at this time, Mark addicts, I think. Like, we just can't help ourselves. We keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back because it's so good. Actually, we finished the book of Mark uh, two weeks ago, but Stacy spent last week, I don't know if you remember this, he spent last week telling us that actually it was done two weeks ago, and those 12 verses that were there um, were a different edition. That's what we talked about last week. So I'm coming in here to give you now the ending of Mark, um, even though we have nothing else to preach out of specifically to go past the end. And then, because we're enablers, we're going to allow Stacy next week to come up again, and he's going to preach again on Mark. I'm not even joking. He's actually going to come. He's going to do a final final. So I'll do this final. <clears throat> it's like a medium final. And then Stacy will come back and he'll do the final final. Yeah, I know. I know. It's been three years. Uh, probably there's some people in here that haven't even been in Hampton Roads for three years. Um, that may be longer than some of you. It took you to do your master's work. Um, three years is a long time. It might be longer than some of your marriages so far. Um, sheesh. Three years ago, I had two children. Now I have four. So we really need to be done with Mark. Um, so, we come this morning and remind us that we come together, a bunch of beggars, to the one who can give bread. If you are here this morning, um, you have experienced pain, heartache, hurt, uh, your own sinfulness, the only consequence of your own sinfulness and your own struggle, you are not alone. That is why one of the reasons that we are here this morning to gather together as those who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I can't tell you exactly your motivation for being here this morning. I don't know all of you. I don't know what your motivation is, but I can tell you why you're here. I can tell you the purpose, in the grand scheme of things, why you're here this morning. It's pretty simple. You're not here for a safe place to meet. You're not really here to hear good music. You're not here for a good cup of coffee and a lecture. Sorry. You're not here for, even, even to be here with good friends or, or anything like that. You're here for one reason this morning. God, in His grace, continues to grow His church. He's been building it since Jesus came. He continues to build it. He's brought us together and he's allowed us to meet continually on this consistent basis and to gather this people and hear his word is our purpose. What is the content of this word? The proclamation of Jesus Christ. That is what we're doing here. That is what you are about to experience. I may not be able to deliver it perfectly and none of us will be able to. However, that's what we're doing here today. Because he is the church's one foundation. Make no mistake about it. That is why we're here. Because of the word, Jesus Christ. 
And we come today to proclaim his name. And we recognize because of that, that that has completely changed everything about our own lives. So we want to come together and we ask God to teach us from his word, to show us who we are against the living word. Every time we're going to come up short. That is why we come back. And that's what we're, we're all about today. Um, we have a problem. Whether you know it or not, whether you're new to Cornerstone, you have no idea what I'm talking about, we have a huge problem. That problem is what separates us from the God of eternity. That problem is called sin. And by the way, you don't get to define sin. I don't get to define sin. It was defined at the beginning of creation. Anything that is against God is sin. And we have acted that out. Not only have we acted it out, but it's innate within us. We know that we are born in sin. We have a huge problem. It was passed to us all the way from Adam all the way through. Nothing has changed in that regard except one gigantic thing. And that's that there's an answer to that problem. God has not left us to be unreconcilable to himself. And again, that's why we're here this morning. None of us has, have met the perfect demands of the law. God demands perfection, justice, holiness. None of us have done it. I don't care who you are. None of us have done it. We know the truth. We have disobeyed. We have rebelled. We have decided to make ourselves the king of our own life. That's rebelling against God, the creator, who has made it so that we would function perfectly in perfect community with him, a relationship in the sense that we're not equals, but rather that he has brought us in as children. And that's where we stand today. As those who believe and trust Jesus Christ, that's where we stand. We take these eternal truths and we apply them to our lives. This will be a little bit different this morning than what we normally do. Um, it's not, in a sense, a very traditional sermon. We won't be taking like real time. Usually we take a, a passage, take a couple verses or a couple paragraphs, and we're going to read them through, and we're going to understand the original context. We're probably going to look at some of the wording that's there and the words and the grammar. And this is not going to be like that. And we're going to take that, usually we'll take that and we'll produce and we'll say, how does this affect our lives? These eternal truths that we find from Scripture, how does it change our lives? All that work that I just talked about at the beginning, <clears throat> that's been done <laughs> for the last three years. We've been mining Mark. We've been continuing to look at it, going into it, referencing other parts that are similar, showing different pieces that just scream to us, pay attention, this is what it's all about. So today will be a lot more of like a family talk, a lot more of coming alongside and saying, we have been through Mark, we did the hard work, the gritting it through and understanding all the minute pieces, and that's what we want to do, and that's valuable. Today, however, I'm going to kind of look back and take a look at the whole, and there's no way, if it took us three years to explain Mark, there's no way I'm going to be able to rightly come back to it and explain it all to you in one shot. So instead, I decided to do one thing. I'm going to take two themes that run through Mark that we see, and we're going to talk about them. Originally, I'll let you know, I had six themes. I sat down in my Bible, and Stacy and I talked about it, <clears throat> talked, went through Mark. I had six pieces of paper. and I, Well, I started with four, actually, and I started writing different themes that I saw but then along the way, I'm like, this keeps coming up. i got to go back. So I'd add another piece, and I'd write something else down. And I had at the end, I had six pieces of paper referencing all the different times in Mark where he's tracing a, a, a theme through the whole book. So I cannot and would never do a good job of trying to explain all of that. So instead, I'm going to take two of those things and do my best to bring us through that to answer one question. 
The question that I believe Mark is answering as well is who is this Jesus? It's the same question that people today ask. It's no different. Who is this Jesus? What is he about? What is he like? And why does it matter? Why do thousands of churches across the United States, across the world, hundreds of thousands probably, meet this morning to do stuff like this, to worship Jesus Christ, to sing about him? We don't get a lot of that. We don't find a lot of people singing to presidents or singing to this grand person or that grand person. Maybe Putin might require some of that kind of stuff. I'm not really sure. But like, we don't see that very much in the world anymore. We spend so much time and we think it's so valuable that we take the time to make up and make sure they're right songs and praise God through them because he's worthy of it. That's why we meet this morning. So <clears throat> we've already done upfront work. This is more of a time for a family talk, more of a time to kind of reminisce a little bit, to be thoughtful and to think through these things. And we're going to take these. And essentially, Mark is telling us the good news. He is trying to tell us the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and one step further, let me take this and say, the good news that is Jesus Christ. It's not like just Jesus was delivering just a message. <laughs> he is, by the way, called in John 1, the Word. That means the spo- he is spoken into existence in this way, not, not as far as generation. He is spoken into by God. He is revealing who God is through his very coming to earth to speak to us, to live among us, and to show who God is. He is the Word, the eternal Word. And that is the one that communicates to us this morning. So the good news that is Jesus is what we're looking at today. So we want to look at two themes. First, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is unlike any other man. Some very simple things to complex things to thinking all, all the way through Mark. And I'm not going to hit everything, but the first thing we're going to look at is that he is unlike any other man. The second thing we're going to look at is the fact that we see Jesus' kingdom, what he is coming to set up, the kingdom of God, is totally unexpected. And I don't mean like it surprised someone. I mean more like what's happening is unexpected compared to what everyone else did think was going to happen. We see this in two ways, so I'll flesh out past that. Two ways we see that are through his messages completely completely opposite to what so many think is true. And some of these start thinking of, let your wheels run and start thinking about before when we went through some of these things that seem so on their head. And we'll go through some, we won't hit all of them. The second thing is that seems to be so uncharacteristic is, or characteristic of what Mark's writing in Jesus' ministry is faith. He continues to come back and showing belief, trusting, faith over and over again. So we'll go through that as well. So starting the first point. If you have your Bible, feel free to follow along. I am going to jump a lot because, again, we're trying to trace through this whole big piece of literature, all right? We're trying to get Mark's take on these two things. So feel free there. Otherwise, I'm going to read it. It'll be a little bit different. Again, not quite the sermon that you're used to. We might as well start at the very beginning. If you look in chapter 1, verse 10 through 11, we introduced to Jesus the scene at his baptism. Remember this. He's being baptized by who? John the Baptist. Very good. Good job, class. Um, have any of you ever experienced what happens in the following verses, though? Uh, the clouds break apart. A dove comes down, or not a dove, but a spirit like a dove comes down resting on Jesus, and a thunderous voice comes through as if through the clouds themselves, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. I've been to quite a few baptism services. 
I have never experienced anything like that. Nothing like that. I've heard like <laughs> trucks going around in the background or like, or planes or all kinds of craziness, but for the, for the, for the skies to open and, and God to say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, this is totally other than what we're used to. We've never seen a man quite like this. This is an introduction into, into Mark. This is how Mark is going to introduce him, that God speaks through heaven to say, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Uh, this just doesn't happen. By the way, that's not the only time, if you remember this, that's not the only time that something like this happens. If you can remember it, the transfiguration, if you remember that big fancy term, the transfiguration where Jesus' is clothes, he goes with James and Peter and John, and his clothes turn bright white. Do you remember this? And uh, Elijah, they, they come and talk to him, and the Old Testament saints, and do you remember what happens or what happened, what, what it said again? It says, a, a little bit different, it says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Um, this is in uh, chapter 9, verse 7, if, you wanna, if you're making notes at all. Again, I'm just going to be jumping. However, this is not the only time. Twice then in his life, God is coming through the clouds to speak and say, this is who this is. Pay attention. He actually even says, listen to him. This is not an ordinary man. How about the numerous times that people are astonished at Jesus' teaching? Remember this? Like a very, very characteristic of the response that Jesus gets when he's teaching um, I, I'll list it a few. In 122, they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and listen to this, and not as the scribes. He's different. Something's different. He has authority. He preaches and teaches in a different way. He's completely different from what we're used to. In verse 27, they are all amazed so that they had questioned among themselves saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? What's going on? Who is this guy? In chapter 6, verse 2, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Again, he's just teaching. He began to teach, and how many, excuse me, and many who heard him were astonished. Excuse me. Saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Everyone's general posture to this guy is, who, even from the, from the elite to those that are beggars, are, they don't understand, who is this guy? He's very much different from any other man that we've seen ever in the history of the world. <laughs> this is Jesus. Um, to illustrate the extent, or I, I want to point something out, is that notice that his appearance is never really talked about. He's not like some great and awe-inspiring leader because of his size. I mean, remember Saul versus King David? Remember Saul is the one who's taller and he looks better than everybody else and he's become a leader mainly because he's head and shoulders above everybody. Jesus' stature, besides the fact that he grew, is never really talked about in the scriptures. Mark doesn't reference it at all. There's no, there's no talk of his political prowess and the way he does things and this and that. So much of it comes simply back to his teaching is with authority and that he's completely different. At one point, if you remember this, Jesus faces off with the Pharisees. <laughs> Actually, he's done it several times. But at one point, he says this, and Jesus answers with a question after they ask him, who do you do this stuff by? Who's the authority? Or what, what should you do? Jesus answers with a question about whether the baptism of John was from heaven or from earth. Do you remember this scenario? So they go back and they talk to themselves and they're like, oh man, we can't answer this this way. If we do answer this way, he'll be such and such. If we answer this way, the people will all be mad at us. So we can't really say anything, so uh, they didn't answer. That's it. These are, the, these are the religious elite. They're supposed to have an answer for everything, at least a politically good answer, right? Or like something that you would speak back to someone and try to at least 
blow smoke somehow or say something along the lines of keeping the peace where it's like, well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say that exactly or, you know, you, you know it's politics time here. You know how people talk. They don't even do that. They can't even speak back to him. This teaching with authority continues to baffle them and they can't respond at all. He stuck it to them in a sense that they can't say anything. He's no ordinary man. In, math, in Mark 12, 17, they also say, after this teaching about the, the coin, when you, remember this? He says, you know, uh, should we give money to Caesar? He talks about the tax. And what does Jesus say? He brings him a coin and says, Who's, whose image is on this? As I say, it's Caesar's. You say, okay, <clears throat> give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But give to God, talking again about image that's imprinted. I love this. Back to God. What's, what's got the image of God imprinted on them? Yeah, us. We know that we are made in the image of God. That means everything else, give it back to God. Yeah, you can give, you can give Caesar his, that's fine. But you need to give back God what is God's. And you know what the Pharisees do and, and those that are around? They marvel. They're like, this is not the answer that we wanted. And we don't, we never even thought of that. So Jesus completely amazes them. We see words like amazed, astounded, astonished, over and over again. He is blowing people away because they can't understand how this person, this man, this one that's born of Mary could be like this, the son of a carpenter, right? We hear them balking at that and saying, we don't get it. How can he be doing these things? Who is this? He's not ordinary. Um, when he commands demons to leave a person... <laughs> They, they leave. When he calms storms and says, peace be still, they stand still. They listen to him. The demons are scared to death and they ask to be thrown into a, a herd of pigs instead because they do not want to have to deal with him. They do not want to have to go or else he could, has the authority to send them. He's not like a normal man. Have many of... Uh, he talks about how, how many of us remember... From, from being in flannel graph Sunday school class, the loaves and the fishes, right? He's the king over nature taking these things and saying, I'll take these few fishes and these few pieces of bread and we're going to create enough to feed an army. Not only one, he does it twice actually. And he feeds a complete army because he's the Lord over nature and over all these different things. How about the time when, he's a, when there, a storm comes up and Jesus is over here and he decides to walk on water? I don't know a lot of normal people besides those that live where it's, you know, 32 degrees or colder that can do that. Otherwise, no one is doing this type of thing. Jesus is not ordinary. He is surprising them all by what he's doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. He walks on water, commands storms to cease, commands demons to leave. He raises dead people, by the way. He multiplies food from a few fish and breadsticks to enough to feed an army. He's a king over nature, over chaos, over life, over death, over sin. You can see that uh, he is blowing everyone out. He baffles every human teacher that he comes across. This guy is different. It's pretty clear that Jesus is unlike any other man, period. You can say what you will. No one else in history has been like this man ever. That's not enough. So let's move to the next point. It's not enough to just say this guy is unlike anybody else. He is so different. He does all these incredible things and people are astonished and amazed. Well, you know, that, that's fine. But if, if you're going to invest into someone like this, you better know what they're saying as well. Not just what they can do and this and that. And what, What's this person about? 
What, what's, what's happening here actually in the background? Can, you, can we talk about what's actually at the root of all this? So second, what we want to look at is, is really what he's about, Jesus himself. Is he about one of those things that are, like, he's trying to just wow everyone? Is he a hoax? Is he putting on a show so he can gain power and strength and, and money? Um, or is he doing something else? The second thing that we want to look at, the theme that we want to trace, we see that Jesus' kingdom is not, the first thing we saw was he's not an ordinary man, but his kingdom is not what people expected. And we saw that again, his teaching is the same way. We're looking at two things. He's presented often in terms of opposite, and then often you see this over and over again, this theme of faith running through the gospel. He comes into Galilee preaching. Remember this? The beginning, it's the beginning of his ministry. He comes into Galilee preaching. He says, repent and believe the gospel. He then calls his disciples. He then goes into Capernaum, remember this, to teach in the synagogue. He hasn't done a thing spectacular yet. This is what he is doing. This is his regular routine. He's finally approached while he's in the synagogue by a demon-possessed man. And he removes the demon. He casts him out. At this point, we see his fame begin to rise. Not on purpose. (laughs) We see him instead. Actually, we see how many times have we seen him say, demon, be quiet. Don't tell people who I am. Or when someone said this, he says, don't tell anyone. Or when, even when Peter says, you are the Christ, he says, keep it to yourselves. What kind of a leader is that who is saying, whoa, 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 hold it here for a minute? So he, he's finally approached by this demon-possessed man. He casts it out. This is his first miracle, this first big thing that he's done. His fame immediately ignites. The next thing that we find is this passage of him going and he's in the garden. He's, he's praying. Remember this? He goes away to pray very early in the morning. And his disciples come after him that morning. They're like, where are you? They're searching all over for him. They finally say, hey, where are you? There's people lining up. They're ready to see you, the great magic healer. They want to see you do it again. Do you know what Jesus' response is? He says this. Um, he says, let us go to the next town and preach, for that is why I came. Instead of, maybe he doesn't understand how the market works. Like, you should, like, really gain momentum and really, you know, solidify yourself and get a good base going and really gain momentum so that when you branch out, you know, then you're really ready and a lot of people have heard of you. Instead, he says, stop, let's go over here. We need to preach over here because that's why I came, was to preach the gospel, the good news to them, not to do fancy tricks or heal people. He certainly did, and we see that all throughout Mark. That's not why he came, though. That's completely not what they expected of someone who was supposed to come to inaugurate their kingdom. Rather, he is, he is kind, of, you know, kind of just keeping it at bay and saying, let's go preach because that's exactly why I came. That's weird. <laughs> this is not what you would expect. Jesus did not come to put on a show or to gather a huge crowd. We see it a lot with big TV preachers who have maybe their own private jet, they have a million dollar house, they have uh, 15,000 people in their congregation that give to them, and that's, none of those things in themselves are wrong, but these things that are being amassing, all these, they, have, they have two new book deals coming out, they're going to be on late night television with this guy to kind of promote their church where they're going to be at. That's not at all what Jesus is doing, completely other. He's heading in a completely different direction, and his point here is to announce his kingdom coming, and it's not like what we expected at all specifically to preach the coming of the kingdom. And later we'll find out that he came not to be served, but rather 
to serve, which is the main, main pillar of what he is doing. Instead of hobnobbing with like big wigs of the day, we find Jesus spending time with fishermen, with tax collectors, with sinners, a group actually called sinners. <laughs> uh, that's who he's spending his time with. Um, if you remember correctly, at, he goes to Levi's house after calling him to be his disciple. This is in chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. The scribes of the Pharisees ask him, what are you doing this for? What are you eating with these tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answers, those who are well, they have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is not what you'd think of an expected coming kingdom. You'd want the right people on your side, the people that can move people, right? You want the people on your side that they have a lot of power and clout and they can move with whether it's their actual force or whether it's um, you know, persuasion, you would be going after those. However, he's with tax collectors, fishermen, and sinners. No one expected the, the king to be socializing with this group in no way, shape, or form. Maybe the synagogue people, maybe like the Pharisees you'd expect, maybe because those are religious people who are concerned with the law. They're looking at the law and they're trying to do right. They really are. They're pursuing that. Maybe he'd go to them. No, he goes rather to this group, the tax collectors and the sinners. This doesn't make any sense. This is not what people are expecting. This teaching has the very same characteristic. At times, it's almost completely opposite of what people thought was going to happen. In chapter 12, Jesus is sitting watching people put money in the offering box. Now, I, I would love to see, like, I can you imagine if someone did this this year, like, the, the, the plate comes to the end, and you're like, hold up the check. Oh, Chris, good, all right. You know, oh, very good, Glenn. You need to give a little more, you know. Along the lines of this, and then it comes to a kid, and the kid throws in a penny, right? And everyone is kind of like, that's kind of cute. Then it gets to maybe one of our senior citizens that's here, which we don't have a lot of, but let's pretend we did. A senior citizen comes along here, and this lady goes through her bag, bag and she pulls out her coin purse, purse, and she literally empties it out, and she has one, one penny, and she puts it in the plate. Out of embarrassment, we almost don't really look at that. It's just like, you know, we just kind of let it go and keep going and moving along. We're not really comfortable with that because it's like, okay, it, you know, thank you for that. That's, that's helpful for something. Thank you for doing it. In this scenario, the widow with the two mites, Jesus is watching this scenario. The, the widow comes up, she puts her two mites, which make a penny in there. And what does Jesus say? She has given more than anyone else combined today. She has given more than anybody else. Whoa, 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 whoa. Look at our reaction to that old lady or to the, or the, to the kid that decides to do that. Give, give a penny. We're like, okay, a penny. That doesn't even hit our books. It might get stuck underneath the door. Like that's, like, we, we don't even think about that. But Jesus' first reaction is, she has given all. See, he places the importance not on what it is, but rather what it meant to her. Jesus isn't in the business of counting dollars. If I can say it this way, Jesus is in the business of counting hearts of your life, of your passion, of yourself to Him. That's completely opposite of what we thought. So different from what we're talking about. He says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they are all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, and has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. One penny in Jesus' kingdom equals the greatest contribution 
Again, this is not for us to come back and say, okay, we need to give everything we possibly have. That's not the point of this lesson. The point is to understand that Jesus is, the way he counts, it's not in pennies and dollars and millions of dollars. The way he counts is saying, those, what I'm concerned about in my kingdom is your heart and who you are and what you are to me. And your, and your buy-in, if you will. It's going to flush itself out in money. It certainly is. It must. We want to take care of those that God has given to us in our charge and in our opportunity to be responsible for and love those that are around us, the world. However, what he is most concerned with is us giving us giving to him ourselves. And that's what this widow did. Completely opposite of what our natural thought is on this. Let's move on to chapter 8. Jesus begins to teach about what it would look like if you are going to be part of his kingdom. And the expectations here, again, are shattered. Instead of saying, you're going to have a, to fight hard and follow me into battle and we're going to make it and be triumphant. It'll be great, it'll be hard, but we're going to make it. Instead of this glorious introduction to the kingdom, try this statement out. He says, if anyone would come after me, okay, if you want to be part of my kingdom, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Completely the opposite way. He actually says the opposite things. If you want to keep your life, you need to lose it. If you want to lose your life, you, you can keep it. He says the opposite things exactly. He reiterates this again. Chapter 9, verse 35. If anyone would be first, he must be what? Last. He must be last of all and servant of all. You want to be first? You've got to be last and servant of all. Then he shows him what he means. He brings in three scenarios. You remember this? We spent some time here. He brings a child along and blesses him. And the disciples are like, and a few verses later, remember this, the disciples say to him, get, get away, kids, get away. And he, he rebukes the disciples and say, no, let the little children come to me. Stacy spent some time here. If you remember this, children in this day are not worth a lot. They can't do much. They're a drain on your pocketbook. They are potential. They're potential, but they're not really valuable, so they don't get a lot to say. They're one of those things where, like, I kind of grew up, my mom saying about the way she grew up in her family is, like, children are seen, not heard. Like, that was kind of the thought here. The kids weren't important. But Jesus, on the other hand, not only does he say, let the children come to me, if you remember this passage, he takes them on his lap and he blesses them, giving them a priority, actually. The next story we moved down, if you remember this as well, was a section in teaching on divorce. Remember this? In this day and age, women had almost no rights, almost as though they were property. And Jesus' teaching completely turns that on his head and says, if you're to divorce and remarry, you've committed adultery, showing the importance of this and this union and how important these are and uplifting, in a sense, the woman's rights as an image bearer and made to be one with her husband in submission to God himself. So uplifting even one, again, women, a little bit more valuable than kids, can help make more kids, but other than that, you know, not a big pillar in the community here. They are a part, but they are not landowners, they are not the ones that are making the decisions. And Jesus gives them the rights, brings them to a position that they matter. The last one is kind of a, a reversal, if you remember this, Mark points out the rich young ruler. The guy that if anyone had it together, it was the rich young ruler. If anyone could be said and called the greatest, it was the rich young ruler. Remember, because not only he's a ruler and he's, and he's got wealth, do you remember all the questions he asks? He says, what should I do? And he says, go do these things and follow these commands. And what's his response? I have. 
I've done all these for my youth. I've done all the right things. Most likely he is a true follower in a sense of, of the law and wants to do these right things and he's done all these things and he's been very successful. And in this day, of course, if you have money, you've been blessed by God. So the one that in, in one sense should be the most blessed and the, most, the greatest in the kingdom, instead, he says, okay, go sell all you have and, and, and give to the poor and what? Follow me, the most important thing that you could possibly do. And he walks away. And he can't do it because all his stuff is way more important to him than to give up and to follow Jesus. All that stuff that seems so important. And Jesus responds, if you remember this, <clears throat> how difficult it will be for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. His point is not that they can't enter the kingdom of heaven. It's exactly what happened to this scenario, though. This rich young ruler had it all together, who probably did follow the law, who probably did all these things well and had much, th- much stuff he couldn't give it up for the kingdom of God. Jesus turns it on its head. That's the opposite. Not what he's supposed to do. How difficult it will be. The last opposite that I just want to bring out is Jesus' approach to greatness. How he speaks and teaches. We already talked about the fact that he was saying, don't tell people about me. Or as soon as he started to gain a following, he goes to the next town so he can preach. And he's more concerned about the message than the actual miracles and gaining uh, a reputation and doing this and being powerful. But now let's hear from his mouth itself. Let us hear from him what he talks about and how he trains on greatness. Chapter 10. This is what Jesus is saying. Verse 42. And Jesus called to them, excuse me, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that's him, that's Jesus, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What do you do? If you want to be the greatest, you need to serve all. If you want to be the first among everyone, you have to be a nasty word. You have to be a slave of all. You need to be their footman. Do everything for them. Serve one another. Love one another. If you want to be the greatest, that's what, you, that's what you're talking about. You have to do. In my kingdom, it's not those that have all the stuff. It's not all those that have followed everything perfectly in there. They have been rewarded for it. Rather, it's those who are willing to serve and reach out and love and do these things and be slave of all. He's completely turned it on its head. Even in his worrying, it's completely on its head. Jesus' kingdom ethic is almost completely opposite to the natural thinking of man, to me even, my own thoughts and the way I think about things. I'm blown away by this. I've heard it my, all my life, but if I really think about it, I know the attitudes that I have. I know the struggle I have with wanting to be recognized, whether it's at work, whether it's you know, in my neighborhood, whatever it is. God's kingdom is not about that, but rather of serving all. And the real king is the one that matters, in his opinion. So, you think, uh, I love this too, is like, like you think that Jesus is just telling you this, well, he's lived it. And if you think that, you know, you just, he just wants, if, you, if Jesus is calling them to give him this teaching, he already lived it. And not only that, if you remember what's going to happen by the end of Mark, which we've been in the last few months here, not only that, Jesus lives it to the point of death and gives himself as a ransom for many. So, 
we're seeing that his kingdom teaching is almost completely opposite of what we would expect from a coming king to one that was, is coming as one being inaugurated. The content of this message, last thing we'll talk about here, faith. And I'm not talking about some flimsy, loosey-goosey, words-on-a-pillow type faith. I'm not talking, by, by the way, you know, if I can just throw this out here just as an aside, when we say, you know, or you come in contact every day with like people that are saying, well, yeah, my faith will get me through this tough time or, um, you know, you know, just hold tight to your faith and it'll be good or I, I live by these things. Take a minute to question that. How many of our leaders, <laughs> our political leaders say they have some sort of faith and are completely antithetical to living out what the gospel is all about? It's not just the political leaders. It's your neighbors and the people around you that they live however they want to and they have no desire to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They're like, no, I have faith. I'm sure you've had, had, had that conversation to like faith in like a grandfatherly God type figure to maybe like faith in the goodness of man. You know, I have, I have faith that we can get through this. That is so water. <laughs> That's so lame. Don't allow yourself to be defined. Please don't say that out loud unless you're going to define what you mean by when you say your faith. Our faith is extremely narrow. Just letting you know, it's one person. When Jesus says, or, you know, he says, um, no man can come to the Father but by who? By me. Jesus is talking about himself. There's no other way to know God except through Jesus. I'm not apologizing for that. We can't apologize for that. Jesus said it. He is the truth. Anything outside of that is faith in something that's anti-God. We're not trusting him. So, thank you for letting me go on that for a minute. But be careful in your words. Don't use words flippantly. Remember that our faith is in a solid rock, Jesus Christ, not in anything else. So, let me get through this, this idea of faith. <clears throat> We're talking about complete trust that leads to action. We're talking about uh, an extremely narrow meaning here that we're talking about we, we trust God completely to be who he says he is and do what he will do. Faith is mentioned over and over again in Mark. If I mention them all here, that could be a completely separate series on the words faith in Mark. So what we're going to do is we're going to pull out a few. From the first chapter, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. This is Jesus' first thing that he says in the book of Mark. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Immediately he is calling people to faith, right from the beginning, to action that is based in the trust and the good news of God's incredible plan of redemption, of which he is, by the way, the main character. What about the next chapter over? Let's go to the next chapter over, in chapter 2. You remember the story of the paralytic and his buddies who tear open the top of the house? Remember this? They're so full of faith, I'll just say it that way, that they rip the top of that open because there's so many people and they can't get this, this friend Jesus. So they open up the top and they open up the top and they somehow get this dude down through this crack here and he's, I, can, I would love to see it, like this, dee, dee, dee. you know, Jesus comes and, and, and he's looking in front of him as this guy on a, on, a, on a pallet of some sort. What is Jesus' response? L let, me, let me read it. <laughs> and Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven you. What was, Jesus, what was it that Jesus noticed? Their faith. Not like their stick to or their like incredible demo skills. Rather, he says the first thing he says is, your faith. He sees their faith. How about the response of his own disciples? 
They're all in the boat. A big storm comes by. It gets really bad. They're freaking out. Jesus somehow, he must be really tired, is sleeping on this boat. If they're scared to death and there's that much storm going on and he's sleeping on the boat, it must have been a hard day. You know, I mean, that's, that's the scenario. They wake him up in uh, verse 39. Let me just read it to you. He woke, he awoke, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Like, like saying to the wind, shut up, be quiet, stand still. The wind ceased, there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What's important to him? Not, not a, why did you drive this way? We know the south side's tough, guys. You should have gone the north route. That's, this is dumb. Or like, you guys should have known the seas. You're fishermen. You know better than that. He says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They had just come off the heels with so many different things already, seeing what Jesus could do, and they don't trust him. I love what Jesus is thinking here. Big storm? No. Too much cargo? No. Lack of faith. <laughs> Make sure we pick up on that. Push the next story. In chapter 5, Jesus is going to heal Jairus' daughter, but on the way, this woman has, who has an issue of blood comes up, and remember what she does? She, she so badly wants to be healed. She knows that if she can follow after him, not necessarily get an audience with him, but if she can just touch his, his garment, if she could just do that, she knows she'll be healed. And she makes it way through. She weaves through and she reaches forward and somehow she grabs his garment. And Jesus, who is surrounded by seemingly hordes of people, because the disciples say so in this scenario, looks back and says, who touched me? And she immediately confesses and says, Lord, it was me and you healed me. You know, and, and I, I love again what he says. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your trust in believing that I am the great healer has made you well. At this time, remember this? One of Jairus' messengers come up. Hey, don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. That was the whole reason he had gotten Jairus. They, they were, they were, Jairus had come to see Jesus to go get him, to take him to, the, to, to see his daughter and to, to heal her. Stop in this issue of blood lady and heals her. Her faith has made her clean or well, and, and, and this messenger says, don't bother anymore, she's dead. Jesus' response over here in the conversation is intriguing. In verse 36, he says, don't fear, only believe. Almost the same type of thing that he's talking about with the disciples, right? He just said, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Here he tells Jairus, he says, don't fear, only believe. And we know the end of that. He does. He raises her to life. She is dead, and he says, daughter, come forward, and raises her to life. We go on and on and on, and all these instances in trusting God is the necessary action in Jesus' kingdom. He commends faith of so many. Gentiles, women, half-breeds, cripples, they're all evidencing faith that Jesus is preaching. But those that he has been spreading or spending time with all this time, the disciples, how are they doing? They continually blow it. They continually do the wrong thing. Um, and you know what? It's consistent with what we've been talking about this whole time, though. They're not expecting this. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Jesus, we're going to go forward, right? He says, no, I have to die. What? And what does Peter do? No, 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 you're wrong. I need to bring you aside. I need to take you aside. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. No, you don't get it. This is why I came. The, the disciples even in that, in, that, in that inner group aren't getting it, and they aren't trusting they aren't believing. 
They aren't doing that. And Jesus rebukes them. He has to literally disciple these men along the way what it means to be a kingdom citizen. And he has to teach them along the way. Because, because again, back to our point, his kingdom is totally unexpected as to what the, the essence is. This idea of trusting and believing, they're not used to it for some reason. They're not getting it. Mark has shown us that Jesus is unlike any other man. He's made it very clear that he is the king over nature, over evil, over life and death. Mark has shown us the kingdom of God is not what the world was expecting, but that sometimes it is completely opposite than what we, should, what, what we think it should be. And as we just saw, lastly, Jesus is calling people to faith, to trust in God that leads to action. As we look at all these things, we realize that this man, this Jesus, is not what we expected out of the Messiah. Um, in short, Jesus is completely different than what we thought we needed or what we wanted. His manner, his teachings, his actions, his kingdom, everything is other than what we expected. And this brings us back to our original conversation where I started. You are here this morning for a purpose, a very specific purpose. The purpose is not for me and you to encourage each other with positive thoughts and rally around a cause and help out CPC, although we should. That's not what we're here about. It's not to encourage each other to some nebulous type of faith. It's not to leave each other and, and uh, build this kingdom and let's, you know, let's all vote Republican. Yeah, let's do that. That's not what we're here to do at all. Rather, we are here because God in His grace, like I said before, has been building this church, his church, and allowed us to be here this morning to gather with his people and to hear his word who the main point of focus is Jesus Christ, to proclaim Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing here, proclaiming Jesus Christ, the one who's completely different from us. There's a point in that, in the new Batman Superman movie, remember this? You've probably seen the trailer where Batman says to him, says in that deep electronified voice, he says, tell me, do you bleed? Jesus is not Superman. Jesus is not an alien. Sometimes we think of him as like, whoa, he's so different. And we just spent all this time doing this, right? Saying he's so different. Not only did he bleed, he served, he bled and died on the cross. We know that he was whipped almost to death and then hung on a cross and he died. Not because of kryptonite or any other stupid thing like that. He was a man like we are, born of Mary. The difference, however, he wasn't the man we expected. He was fully man, but he was fully God. He was the perfect man. He was the one who was perfect, holy, and just. The one who cared for the widow, the weak, and the poor. The one who proclaimed true life would only come through dying. The one who taught that it was only through serving others that we could ever truly be great in his kingdom. The one who most importantly came not to be served, although he had every right to be as the king, but rather to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's us. That's us we're talking about. Not only to come to serve us in a very practical way, but he came to give his life for us. The one who laid down his life that we might have peace with God and be reconciled. We are here to glory in the fact that Jesus is completely other 
end that is what makes our eternal salvation possible. It is this Jesus that we trust. It is this Jesus that we sing to, our King. It is this Jesus that we live our lives for, our Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize that there's nobody like you, and we want so badly to uh, craft and make a Messiah that, that we would like and that would make more sense to us and uh, that we're more comfortable with, in a sense. One who's victorious and knocking down things and doing his will as he pleases, but when you come, you don't do any of that right away, Lord. You, instead, you serve. Instead, you say, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Instead, you die. You seemingly lose, but we know that Easter happened. We know that you conquered the grave, and we know that you begin in us a good work, and we know that you will come again because you are the king. We ask for faith. We ask that you would help us to trust you and our all reliance would be in you. Not as though you're our buddy that comes alongside of us to help us get through this tough life. No, Jesus. Let us die to ourselves and would you live through us. May we just be the branches and you be the vine. May you live and work through us. May we see ourselves like you see us as image bearers that have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, used as tools in your kingdom. We want to do this, God. If there are those that <clears throat> you are doing that in also who don't know you or who don't trust you, would you strike their hearts? Would they know that your truth is the only truth? May you find them today and work in them and seek after them and bring them to know you. We love you. We ask that you'd give us all that we need, and you have already. Our weakness, we even ask for that. We know, Lord, the Spirit lives within us. May you do your work in us and for your glory today. In Jesus' name.